It's a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, Kira and I and our family have been blessed so many times through the ministry of First of Ann during our uh, 36 years, 37 years we've lived around here, almost, uh, a long time. And uh, we have uh, a number of friends here, and we're grateful uh, to be with you this morning. If you open your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians, we're going to look in chapter 2. And I'm going to pick up in verse 11. You say, why are you skipping over verses 1 through 10? Because I want to get to verse 11 through 22. Uh, verses 1 through 10, we're very familiar. It, it maybe is one of the most basic passages we consider when we think about the gospel of Christ. But what I want us to see in verses 11 through 22 is how the gospel works in the church. And so literally what we have here is the outworking of the gospel in the local church. What does that look like? And how are we to view the church? Uh, what I think this passage uh, presses on us is that we are to learn to live life in the shadow of the cross. Hear God's word. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. May he write that word on our hearts. I mean, does the saving work of Jesus make any difference in how we live together as the church? I, I remember as a young Christian being extremely untaught and not in a healthy church that I was having to learn this truth bits by bits. Uh, I, I knew I needed to live for Christ. I just didn't know what that looked like. I did not understand how that worked together with the body of Christ. And, and so I fell into the trap that was so common for so many people, maybe in some of you this morning, of just following a list of rules and regulations, do's and don'ts. And two things happened. I failed over and over, and I was miserable, and I probably made a lot of people miserable around me because I did not understand 
that as hard as I try, I cannot please God. But Jesus did. And that's why I needed to learn to live under the shadow of the cross. Uh, maybe you identify. I mean, many Christians go through struggles with legalism and experientialism and a lot of other isms uh, that become substitutes for Christian growth. I mean, how do we get out of the endless drudgery of altness? Living life by a list of regulations or some kind of sought-out experiences or some kind of legalism. One thing we need to agree uh, to agree with the Apostle Paul in his declaration in Romans ten fourteen. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. Jesus became our righteousness. We don't achieve it. His death and resurrection sealed that divine exchange. And he took our sins and he gave us his righteousness. I love the way the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is Jesus' holy life and faithful cross work that creates a people whom God declares righteous. But how does that great truth work out into the practicalities of life? This is where this passage helps us. Here's what I want us to see. If we would walk together in joy and faithfulness as the church, we must learn to live life under the shadow of the cross. But what does that look like? Well, I want us to think about four realities in this text about how the cross affects the way we view the church and consequently how we live out life in Christ together. Now, after Paul declared the reality of our deadness and sin in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and the great but God in verse 4 through 7 in his pursuit of us in grace, and then the explanation of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone in verses 8 and 9, and then of our redemption as a new creation in Christ in verse 10, he now brings all of that redemptive work together and begins to apply it into the multi-hued dimensions of the church. So how does the cross affect the way we view how we walk together and live together in Christ? Notice first, the cross affects the way we view the church by remembering what we were. Uh, you'll notice that Paul is continuing application, verse 11. Therefore, remember. Therefore, what? Therefore, what I've just told you in verses 1 to 10. Now, remember, and then he picks up again in uh, verses in, in, in verse 12, after he's, he, he shows us he's not beginning a new subject, but rather he begins to cheer on these Gentile believers uh, to remind them and to remind us of what we were before Christ pursued us in redeeming love. So in verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was another way of saying what he 
declared in verses 1 to 3. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You were under the control, the dominion of the prince of the power of the air. You were living under the influence and power of both the world and the flesh. And so we're separated, we're alienated, we're strangers with no hope and without God. Now, when Christ met us, all that changed. When he pursued us in redeeming love and we came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then he changed that status. He changed and and removed that alienation. And yet Paul says we're not to forget that alienation. We're to remember it. We're not to lose sight of the wonder of Jesus' saving work and the costliness of our redemption. We're not to lose sight of what it is to be brought together into fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to remember the bloody cross of Jesus as we think about our sins. I mean, we do that or should do that when we come to the Lord's table, shouldn't we? Remember the death of Jesus until he comes. That's what we're doing as we, as we gather at the Lord's table. But what do we remember about his death? We remember the wretchedness of our sin. We remember our alienation. We remember our separation. We remember our rebellion and the costliness of that redemption and how Jesus rescued us from the penalty and power of sin. We remember not to despair. Not to despair, but to worship and praise our Lord. Second, the cross affects the way we view the church by remembering the effectiveness of Jesus' work. Notice verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, he's talked about this alienation, and then he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That now, but now, is pointing to the decisiveness of the work of Jesus on our behalf. And there it is again. This is that bloody death of Jesus. This is that shadow of, cross, uh, of the cross again, bringing us near in reconciliation to God by the cross work of our Lord Jesus. That's the effectiveness of his work so that every detail of salvation, past, present, and future, our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, rests on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need that shadow of the cross in view. Lest we grow to admire our behavior and our good deeds and all of our lively church activities instead of admiring Jesus and seeing him. You see, good growth and sanctification doesn't leave the shadow of the cross for other things. Maybe some think even better things, but rather it battles. This good growth and sanctification battles so that we don't slip into self-reliance. And this is why we're gathered as the body of Christ, to help and sharpen each other in that regard. I mean, what's, what's the problem that we face? Well, think about the, the default position in our psyches of retreating to uh, self-promotion and centering everything on ourselves. We have to fight against this every day. I mean, it's, it's the natural tendency of the flesh to trip us up. And when that happens, we begin to think that the church exists to make me feel good. 
And just to make me happy, to promote my agenda, I remember as a a much younger pastor in the 80s, there was a nice lady who was a member of a church I I was pastoring. And after one morning service, she came up to me somewhat exasperated and said, I like to feel good about myself when coming to church. But that's not happening anymore with your preaching. And I don't like it. That's not a very popular thing to say to a pastor. But nevertheless, I I wasn't sure if she was putting me on notice or expressing anger. But she was reacting to the gospel exposing her spiritual deficiencies. She failed to understand that that we need to see the reality about ourselves regularly so that we gladly keep looking to Christ, so that we keep living under the shadow of the cross. We must see that our righteousness is in Jesus alone. And the goal of corporate worship must not be to make us feel good about ourselves, but rather to meet Christ. And as we meet him, We die to self, and we live in his resurrection life so that Christ is formed in us. You see, we must remember that we're part of the church only by the effective, redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And without that cross work, we have no church. It's not due to anything we accomplish. It's not due to what we bring to the table Let the shadow of the cross fall on how we see the church. You see, the blood-bought costliness of our salvation needs to be our daily meditation and, and regular encouragement with one another. I mean, never be impressed with your admirable theological knowledge or with your spiritual gifts or your contributions to ministry. Be impressed with the bloody death of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Let him be your focus. Be overwhelmed that he rose from the dead. Let the shadow of the cross fill you with humble joy. I I love the way the Puritan pastor and theologian John Owen, who certainly lived in the shadow of the cross, put it in his book, The Glory of Christ. He said, we might see him, Jesus, under the weight of God's wrath and the curse of the law taking upon himself and on his whole soul the utmost that God had ever threatened to sinner sinners. We might see him wrestling with all the powers of darkness, the rage and madness of men, and suffering all this in his soul, his body, his name, his reputation, his goods, and his life. What shall we say to these things? That God did not spare his son, but gave him up to death, and all the sufferings associated with that death for such poor lost sinners, that for our sakes the eternal Son of God should submit himself to all that our sinful natures were liable to and our sins deserved that we might be delivered. You see, the cross affects the way we view the church by remembering the effectiveness of Jesus' work. Third, the cross affects the way we view the church by remembering the constructive power of the cross. Now, the cross does destroy. And we we certainly see that in this text, verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one 
and has broken down, literally has destroyed in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility or enmity. The cross destroys our enmity with God and consequently our enmity with one another who are in Christ. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But the cross that destroys also constructs it constructs the church by joining different people and personalities and ethnicities and backgrounds into one people. Verse 19, but, 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 that is because of the cross, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. You see, the church exists by this death and resurrection of Christ. If we think it exists by our programs and our buildings and our heritage, We've missed the biblical teaching on the church. The church, verse 20 says, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What was that? Building blocks? Of course not. It was the gospel they proclaim. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so what the apostles and prophets preached is the gospel of that crucified, resurrected, reigning Son of God, Jesus Christ. The gospel is centered in Jesus. Therefore, so also must the church be centered on the gospel that Jesus purchased through his own bloody death at the cross. Which means we have to regularly ask ourselves, does our worship in our ministry, in our mission, and our services, and our activities, and our relationships, and even our polity, does it mirror what Jesus has done? Is it shaped by the gospel? I mean, think about when the ancients designed and constructed a building. They fixed everything on the cornerstone. They laid this big stone, and they squared and shaped the building with it. Uh, unlike what we think of as the cornerstone where you got a little concrete box and you break it open and there's an old newspaper and some other trinkets that would remind someone of uh, bygone days. Instead of that, here was this massive stone and everything in the building was shaped and squared and lined and built with that one stone in view. And here's the implication the more we understand and live in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the more focused we become on how the church is built on the revelation of Jesus. I mean, didn't Jesus tell Peter that's what he's building his church on, on this gospel revelation? The whole life and ministry of the church must be shaped and formed by the cornerstone. And the cornerstone unites you see, the healthy relationships that we desire to have together in the church must be built on the revelation of Jesus, as he says in verse 21, in whom the whole structure, he's talking about the church, he's talking about people joined together, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And here's where the metaphor takes on new dimensions, that the church is a living building. Peter calls us living stones that are connected to the living stone, Jesus Christ. Here again, it's the shadow of the cross falling upon the church because the relationship to Jesus in the gospel reframes and refocuses our relationships to one another in the church. 
changes our mission. It reorients our service in the community. It shifts our strategies and plans uh, to operate by the power of the Lord Jesus. All that we are, all that we have, all that we accomplish is built by the faithfulness of our cornerstone who laid down his life for us. And so we learn to evaluate who we are as a church, not by statistics, not by popular checklists. Well, what's the church supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to look like? No, but rather how much our lives, our relationships, and our ministries are shaped by the cross of Christ. How does that shadow of Jesus' cross affect the way that we consider the church? And by that, I don't mean buildings, but I mean these relationships that are bound together by the Lord Jesus Christ through the work of the Spirit. Let let me give you four things right quick. One, it means we have these relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ because Jesus bought us at a great price. So instead of analyzing, looking down on others, pause to remember Jesus died to save that brother and sister. And as verse 19 says, we're now one household. And since he loves them that much, by God's grace helping us, we want to love and accept others in the body. Second, if the relationships are bought at such a price, then we must never take them for granted. We must consider how to maintain our relationships with humility and gentleness toward one another. You see, we are, as verses 19 and 20 teach us, we are a gospel people formed together into a holy living temple. And this means we have to work on relationships. They don't always come easy. Yeah, they don't always come easy, do they? I mean, we have to get to know each other. We have to introduce and sometimes reintroduce ourselves. We have to engage in conversations and get together for coffee or a meal, pray for each other and look for ways to encourage and build up one another. In other words, we can't be passive about church membership. We must be engaged with one another because we share a common spiritual heritage and an eternal future through Christ. Third, the shadow of the cross is always a reminder to practice the one another passages toward each other in the church. Verse 19, we're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints. So how do you treat these fellow citizens? Well, the constructive power of the cross enables us to love one another, be kind to one another, encourage one another, accept one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, spurred earlier uh, to, uh, to stir one another to love and good deeds. All those one another passages, there are about 30 of them, they're the Lord's barometer of how blood-bought people relate to one another. And then fourth, he uh, be involved in mission with one another in the church. I mean, we're reconciled people, so what do we want? What do we long for? We long to see others reconciled to the Lord Jesus. And, and so mission is the natural overflow of that gospel rooted in us. The cross of Jesus makes that a reality for us. We're joined to one another via the cross, and that cross motivates us to missions. Uh, shortly after 
we planted uh, our church in 1987. There was a young man that uh, joined our church, and he began to hang out with us, hang out with the family, eat meals. And when we had our few snows in Memphis, you know, those, those dustings that cause all of us to flurry to the stores, we're getting ready for that season. Well, he would come and spend the night with us, and our, our kids looked at him like he was a big brother. Well, he and I went on our first mission trip together. For either one of us, 1989, we went to Brazil. And we roomed together, we prayed together, uh, we talked through details on how to serve, we practiced Portuguese, we even later took Portuguese at the University of Memphis together, and we, uh, we spent so much time just thinking about mission. Little did I know that that partnership would blossom in just a few years. He would go to Albanians and spend about five years serving there, and then after uh, being evacuated by the Marines, he later along with his Brazilian wife that I introduced to him on our second mission trip, uh, spent, has spent the last 23 years in Brazil. And I've had the joy to be with him in a number of countries uh, in, in the last uh, number of years. And right at the center of all of this relationship is the cross of Christ. That's what binds us. That's what motivates. That's what keeps moving us forward for the cross has constructive power to bring us together for life and service and mission. Number four, the last point, the cross affects the way we view the church by remembering the effects of Jesus' cross work. You see, the church must return again and again to the cross and resurrection because we cannot understand the church apart from the cross, which means in our regular interactions with one another in the church, we cannot grasp how to faithfully relate to one another apart from the work of Jesus in his cross. Consider a few things in this passage that help us to see this. One, Jesus brought peace to the church where there was only hostility among people. You see that in verses 14 to 16, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Notice these actions of Christ. He became our peace. He broke down in his flesh the dividing wall. He abolished the law and commandments of ordinances that that divided. He created himself one new man, the church. He put the two together and made peace. He reconciled us both to God in one body. Again, there's the church. He did that through the cross by which he killed the hostility. I mean, here is the gospel, not the law, not some act of legalism, reconciling us together, not just reconciling those whose hearts are weighed down with guilt, but reconciling us so that there is a demonstration of his power to, to bring peace to those who formerly were at enmity. And, and of course, we, we see the picture of the Jews and Gentiles here brought together in Christ. The gospel believed and received. The gospel sown and implanted and rooted in the heart brings a spirit of reconciliation. You see, it is a cross that conquers racism and prejudice 
and bigotry and judgmentalism and narcissism and all the self-centered, arrogant, haughty, haughty attitudes of the flesh. And at the heart of Jesus' reconciliating work is the reflection of the oneness which is in the Godhead, which he is working in the church. You see, the cross brings us into the kind of oneness that you see in the Trinity. Remember in the Lord's high priestly prayer, John 17, 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. They, who's they? It's us. It's us. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. The Father sent Jesus to reconcile sinners to God and to one another, uniting us together in him, declaring the gospel's power to break down every barrier on behalf of reconciled people. Second, Jesus' cross work brought estranged and egotistical people into one new man. Verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. That's how he's describing the church. That's how he's describing all the nationalities. Jesus' cross work in justifying and sanctifying effectiveness removes the junk that separates us that we might be one new man. And in this context of Jews and Gentiles who hated and loathed each other, they, like us, could not break down the relational wall dividing them but Jesus did in his cross work. And if he did that with those ethnicities that despise one another, how much more does that work of the cross remove barriers that would separate us? The shadow of the cross falls upon the church so that pettiness and bickering and jealousy and party factions might be crushed and that regenerated and reconciled people might be one new man in the place of two. The shadow of the cross lingers in the way we think about the church. Is that shadow shaping you in your relationships? Third, Jesus brought us in reconciliation with God and all members of God's family giving spirit-enabled access to God. Look in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, to Gentiles and to Jews, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Those Jews did not have access into the Holy of Holies. Only the priests did, and they had to have those mediators. But when Jesus declared, it is finished, access to God was open. So, verse 18, he says, the church's access is in one spirit to the Father. This is the corporate priesthood of the believers, that we've been made a kingdom of priests who seek the Lord together and worship together and pray for one another and exhort one another in the word. And he brought us together as one household, as the family of God who spend eternity with each other. And yet, what happens, brothers and sisters, this is, is why we, we must live under the shadow of the cross, we sometimes grow self-centered and even crotchety in our ways so that we fail to enjoy the beautiful relationships that the Lord has purchased for us. We may want the church to cater to us or be what we want it to be instead of this cross-shaped household of God. 
And yet, he says here, the peace we have in relationship with one another is really testifying to the power of the gospel. We cannot hold each other at arm's length. We cannot live refusing forgiveness. We cannot live maintaining bitter attitudes. Or if we do, we confuse what the world thinks the gospel is. And then fourth, Jesus brought the body together as a holy temple, corporately indwelled by the Spirit. Verse 20, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, that's what he's calling the church, being joined together grows into, here's another image of the church, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also, that is you, the church, are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit, another image of the church. So with all the weaknesses and idiosyncrasies that every church has, by the work of the cross, the Lord Jesus is building his church to sanctify us and indwell us. And the shadow of the cross reminds us we are a corporate dwelling of the Spirit. We gather and the Spirit is among us. And so we have to stop and ask ourselves regularly, regularly, do our gatherings reflect that? Do our gatherings reflect the shadow of the cross? Do our relationships with one another reflect that? Does our response to the preached word reflect that? We're growing into a holy temple in the Lord. That's sanctification language. It's corporate sanctification. We're not to just set our mind on individual sanctification. That's one reason we sink so often. We need to be growing in Christ together. And that's the promise from Christ as the fruit of his death and resurrection, that he is maturing us into a holy people. And remarkably, he says that we are dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As new covenant people corporately indwelled by the Spirit, we are the temple. There's no need for stones and all of that. We are the temple, and if the Holy Spirit has settled down into the corporate body of the church, then what kind of people should we be? Oh, a people shaped by the cross. Maybe you listen to this and you say, that doesn't mean a thing in the world to me. It's because you need that work of Christ in your life. You need new life in him. You need your sins forgiven. You need your guilt removed. You need your enmity between you and God addressed. And Jesus did that on the cross. Turn to him. Repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And as those who are followers of Christ, the cross affects the way we view the church. The devil, the world, the flesh do everything they can to disrupt that centrality of being cross-centered people. And so I exhort us, let's live under the shadow of the cross. That's where we grow. That's where we do mission. That's how we live life together. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your mercies shown to us in the Lord Jesus, that you would give grace to respond to your word. We pray for those who are unbelieving that you might bring them to a settled assurance of faith in Christ. 
We pray for one another as followers of Jesus, acknowledging our sin as we did earlier in this service, acknowledging our sin and our constant need for what you have done for us through Christ. We pray that you would shape us by that work of our Lord Jesus, that you would have your way in us. I pray your blessing on this church. I thank you for them. We pray that Christ might be magnified in their midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.